Chapter 10 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand. Translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 10. But have you not contracted some new friendships here? asked the Princess Amelia. Among so many witty and gifted persons, whom my brother boasts of having drawn from all quarters of the world, are there none worthy of esteem? There certainly are, madam, and if I had not preferred retirement and solitude, I might have found many benevolent souls about me. Mademoiselle Cochet, the Marchioness d'Argens, you mean? I do not know if she be so called. You are discreet, and you are right. Well, she is a distinguished person. Extremely so, and very good at heart, though she may be a little vain of the attentions and the lessons of the Marquis, and somewhat looks down upon the artists her companions from the height of her grandeur. She would be much more humble did she know who you are. The name of Rudelstadt is one of the most illustrious of Saxony, while that of Dargens belongs only to the small gentility of Provence or Languedoc. And Madame de Cossier, how is she? Do you know her? As, since her marriage, Mademoiselle Barberini no longer dances at the opera and lives most generally in the country, I have few opportunities of seeing her. Of all our actresses, she is the one with whom I feel most sympathy, and I have often been invited by her and her husband to visit them on their estate. But the king has given me to understand that this would displease him greatly, and I have been obliged to give up that pleasure without knowing why I should suffer such a privation. I will inform you. The king paid court to Mademoiselle Barberini, who preferred the son of the Grand Chancellor to him, and the king fears the effect of this evil example upon you. But among the men, are you intimate with no one? I have much friendship for Monsieur Francis Benda, His Majesty's first violinist, there is a similarity between his fate and mine. He led the life of a Zingaro in his youth, as I did in my childhood. Like myself, he cares very little for the grandeurs of this world and prefers liberty to riches. He has often told me how he fled from the Count of Saxony to share the wandering, joyous, and miserable lot of the artists of the highway. The world does not know that there are upon the roads and in the streets virtuosos of great merit. An old blind Jew completed, over hills and valleys, the education of Benda. He was called Lobel, and Benda never speaks of him but with admiration, although he died upon a heap of straw, or even in a ditch perhaps. Before applying himself to the violin, Monsieur Franz Benda had a magnificent voice and made singing his profession. Grief and ennui made him lose it at Dresden. In the pure air and in vagabond liberty, he acquired another talent. His genius took a new flight, and from that traveling conservatory has issued the magnificent virtuoso, whose assistance His Majesty does not disdain in his chamber concerts. George Benda, his youngest brother, is also an original, full of genius, by turns epicurean and misanthropic. His capricious mind is not always amiable, but he always interests me. I think that this one will not succeed in dressing, as do his other brothers, 
who now wear with resignation the gilded chain of royal dilettantism. But he, either because he is the youngest or because his natural character is unconquerable, always talks of taking flight. He is so heartily ennuied here that it is a pleasure for me to be ennuied with him. And do you not hope that this partaken ennui will lead to a more tender feeling? It would not be the first time that love was born of ennui. I neither fear nor hope it, replied Consuelo, for I feel that it can never be. I have told you, dear Amelia, that something strange has taken place within me. Since Albert is no more, I love him, I think only of him, I can love only him. I verily believe this is the first time of a certainty that love has been born of death, and yet this is what happens to me. I cannot forgive myself for not having granted happiness to a being worthy of it, and this tenacious regret has become a fixed idea, a sort of passion, a madness perhaps. It seems to me something like it, said the princess. It is at least a disease, and yet it is a malady which I well conceive, and which I also experience. For I love an absent person, whom perhaps I shall never see again. Is not that almost like loving a dead one? But tell me, is not my brother, Prince Henry, an amiable cavalier? Yes, certainly. A great amateur of the beautiful, an artist's soul, a hero in war, a striking and pleasant, though not handsome face, a proud and independent mind, the enemy of despotism, the unsubdued and menacing slave of my brother the tyrant. In fine, the best of the family, certainly. They say he is very much in love with you. Has he not told you so? I listened to it as a jest. Have you no desire to take it seriously? No, madam. You are very difficult, my dear. What defect do you see in him? A great defect, or at least an invincible obstacle to love on my part. He is a prince. Thanks for the compliment, you rogue. Then he had nothing to do with your fainting fit on the stage the other evening. It was said that the king, jealous of the manner in which he gazed at you, had sent him away under arrest at the beginning of the opera, and that grief made you quite ill. I was entirely ignorant that the prince had been arrested, and am very sure that I was not the cause. That of my accident was very different. Imagine, madam, that in the midst of the piece I was singing somewhat mechanically, as too frequently happens to me here, my eyes wandered at random over the boxes of the first tier near the stage, and suddenly, in that of Monsieur Galaquin, I saw a pale face appear at the bottom and lean insensibly forward as if to look at me. That face was Albert's, madam. I saw him, I recognized him. I know not if it was an illusion, but it is impossible that one could be more terrible or more complete. Poor child, you have visions, that is certain. Oh, that is not all. Last week, after I had given you the letter from Monsieur de Trenck, I lost my way in the palace as I was retiring, and at the entrance of the Cabinet of Curiosities I met Monsieur Stoss, with whom I stopped to converse. While I there saw that same face of Albert, and I saw it threatening, as I had seen it indifferent the evening before at the theater, as I have incessantly seen it in my dreams, angry or disdainful. And Monsieur Stoss saw it likewise? He saw it very well, and told me it was a certain Trismegistus, whom your highness is pleased to consult as a necromancer. 
Ah, good heaven, cried Madame de Kleist, becoming pale. I was very sure he was a real sorcerer. I can never look at that man without being afraid. Although his features are handsome and he has an air of nobleness, there is something diabolical in his physiognomy, and I am certain that he assumes, like a Proteus, all the appearances he wishes in order to frighten people. With that he is a grumbler and censurer, like all his kind. I recollect that once, when drawing my horoscope, he reproached me bitterly for having divorced Monsieur de Kleist because Monsieur de Kleist was ruined. He made a great crime of it. I wished to defend myself, and as he was rather haughty with me, I began to be vexed when he predicted to me with vehemence that I should be married again and that my second husband would perish by my fault even more miserably than the first, but that I should be well punished for it by my remorse and the public odium. While saying this, his face became so terrible that I thought I saw Monsieur de Kleist resuscitated, and I fled to Her Highness's apartment, uttering great cries. Yes, that was a funny scene, said the princess, who sometimes, as if in spite of herself, resumed her dry and bitter tone. I laughed at her like a crazy woman. There was no reason, said Consuelo, artlessly. But who is this Trismegistus and fine? And since your highness does not believe in sorcerers, I have promised to tell you some day what sorcery is. Do not be in such a hurry. For the present, know that the diviner Trismegistus is a man whom I value highly and who may be very useful to all three of us and to many others. I should much like to see him again, said Consuelo, and though I tremble at the thought, I should like to assure myself, in cold blood, if he resembles Monsieur de Rudelstadt so much as I imagined. If he resembles Monsieur de Rudelstadt, you say, well, you recall to me a circumstance which I had forgotten, and which will perhaps explain all this great mystery in a very commonplace manner. Wait, let me think a moment. Yes, now I remember. Listen, my poor child, and learn to mistrust all that may seem supernatural. It was Trismegistus whom Cagliostro showed to you, for Trismegistus has relations with Cagliostro and was here last year at the same time with him. It was Trismegistus whom you saw at the theater in Count Galaukin's box, for Trismegistus dwells in his house and they busied themselves together in chemistry and alchemy. In fine, it was Trismegistus, whom you saw the next day in the chateau, for on that day, and shortly after having dismissed you, I saw Trismegistus, and by the way, he gave me full details respecting Trenck's escape. So far as to boast of having contributed to it, said Madame de Kleist, and to be reimbursed by your highness for money, which he certainly had not expended for that purpose. Your highness may think of him what you will, but I dare to tell you that man is a chevalier d'industrie, which does not prevent his being a great sorcerer. Is it not so, de Kleist? How do you reconcile so much respect for his science with so much contempt for his person? Eh, madam, they go together in the best manner possible. We fear sorcerers, but we detest them, exactly as we do with the devil. And yet we wish to see the devil and cannot do without sorcerers. This is your logic, my beautiful de Kleist. But, madam, said Consuelo, who listened eagerly to this strange discussion, how do you know this man resembles Monsieur de Rudelstadt? 
I forgot to tell you, and I learned it by the merest chance. This morning, when Supperville was telling me your story and that of Count Albert, all that he said of that strange personage made me curious to know if he was handsome and if his face corresponded with his extraordinary imagination. Supperville reflected a few moments and at last answered me, Well, madam, I can give you a very exact idea of him, for you have among your playthings an original who would be horribly like that poor Rudelstadt if he were more meager, more wan, and wore his hair differently. That is your sorcerer, Trismegistus. This is the point of the matter, my charming widow, and it has no more sorcery in it than Cagliostro, Trismegistus, St. Germain, and company. You remove a mountain from my breast, said the porporina, and a veil from before my eyes. It seems to me that I am born again into life and that I awake from a painful sleep. Thanks to you for this explanation. Then I am not deranged, then I do not have visions, then I shall no longer be afraid of myself. And yet see how the human heart is formed, added she after a moment's reverie. I believe that I regret my fear and my weakness. In my extravagance I had almost persuaded myself that Albert was not dead, and that, at some future day, after having made me expiate by horrible apparitions the evil I had caused him, he would return to me without clouds and without resentment. Now I am very sure that Albert sleeps in the tomb of his fathers, that he will not rise again, that death will not lose his prey, and this is a deplorable certainty. Can you have doubted it? Well, there is happiness in being crazy. As for myself, I had no hope that Trank would ever escape from the dungeons of Silesia, and yet that was possible, and it did happen. If I were to tell you, beautiful Amelia, all the suppositions to which my poor imagination gave itself up, you would see that, in spite of their improbability, they were not all impossible. For example, a lethargy, Albert was subject to them, but I will not recall those senseless conjectures. They pain me too much, now that the face which I took for Albert's is that of a chevalier d'industrie. Trismegistus is not what people think him, but what is certain is that he is not the Count de Rudelstadt, for it is several years since I have known him, and since he has practiced, in appearance at least, the trade of a diviner. Besides, he is not so like the Count de Rudelstadt as you persuade yourself. Supperville, who is too skillful a physician to have had a man buried in a lethargy, and who does not believe in ghosts, has verified differences which your trouble did not permit you to remark. Oh, how I would like to see that Trismegistus again, said Consuelo, with an absent air. Perhaps you will not see him again very soon, replied the princess coldly. He left for Warsaw the very day you saw him in this palace. He never remains more than three days at Berlin, but he will certainly return in a year. And if it were Albert, resumed Consuelo, absorbed in a profound reverie, the princess shrugged her shoulders. Decidedly, said she, my fate condemns me to have either fools or crazy women for friends. This one takes my sorcerer for her late husband, the canon de Kleist, that one for her dead husband, the Count de Rudelstadt. It is lucky for me that I have a strong head, for perhaps I should take him for Trank, and God knows what would happen. Trismegistus is a poor sorcerer, not to profit by these mistakes. 
Come, Porporina, don't look at me with such a wild and horrified air, my beauty. Recover your senses. How can you suppose that if Count Albert, instead of being dead, had awakened from a lethargy, so interesting an event would have made no noise in the world? Have you retained no connection, moreover, with his family, and would they not have informed you? I have retained none, replied Consuelo. The canoness Wenzelawa wrote to me twice in the course of a year to announce to me two sad events, the death of her elder brother, Count Christian, my husband's father, who finished his long and sorrowful career without recovering the memory of his misfortune, and the death of Baron Frederick, the brother of Christian and the canoness, who was killed when hunting by falling from the fatal mountain of the Schreckenstein to the bottom of a ravine. I replied to the canoness as was my duty. I dared not offer to carry to her my sad consolations. Her mind appeared to me from the letters divided between her goodness and her pride. She called me her dear child, her generous friend, but did not seem in any way to desire the assistance and the cares of my affection. So you suppose that Albert, resuscitated, lives tranquil and unknown at Giant's Castle without giving you notice and without anyone's imagining such a thing out of the enclosure of said castle? No, madam, I do not suppose it, for it would be entirely impossible, and I am crazy to wish to think so, replied Consuelo, hiding her face in her hands. The princess seemed, as the night advanced, to resume her bad character. The sarcastic and inconsiderate tone in which she spoke of things so dear to Consuelo's heart affected the latter most unpleasantly. Come, don't look so grieved, resumed Amelia roughly. This is a fine party of pleasure indeed. You have told us stories to bring the devil on earth. The Kleist has been so pale and trembling all the time. I believe she will die of fear, and I, who wish to be happy and gay, I suffer at seeing you suffer, my poor child. The princess pronounced these last words with a good diapason of her voice, and Consuelo, raising her head, saw that a tear of sympathy was flowing down her cheek, while the smile of irony still contracted her lips. She kissed the hand which the abbess extended to her, and inwardly pitied her for not being able to remain good for successive hours. However mysterious your giant's castle may be, added the princess, however savage the canoness, and however discreet her servants, be sure that nothing happens there, more than elsewhere, which is secured from a certain degree of publicity. Though they took great pains to conceal the eccentricities of Count Albert, the whole province soon knew of them, and they had been long spoken of at the little court of Braith when Supperville was called to attend your poor husband. There is now in that family another mystery, concealed doubtless, with no less care, but which has been no better kept from the public malice. That is the flight of the young Baroness Amelia, who was carried off by a handsome adventurer shortly before the death of her cousin. And I, madame, was ignorant of this for quite a long time. I can even inform you that all is not discovered in this world, for hitherto no one has been able to discover the name or condition of the man who carried off the young baroness any more than the place of her retreat. That is what Supperville told me indeed. Well, that old Bohemia is a country of mysterious adventures, but that is no reason why Count Albert should be. In the name of heaven, madam, let us speak no more of that, 
I ask your pardon for having wearied you with this long story, and when your highness shall order me to retire. Two in the morning, cried Madame de Kleist, who shuddered at the doleful sound of the palace clock. In that case we must separate, my dear friends, said the abbess, rising, for my sister of Anspach will come to wake me as early as seven in order to entertain me with the mad pranks of her dear Margrave, who has lately returned from Paris madly in love with Mademoiselle Claron. My beautiful Porporina, you queens of the theater are queens of the world by fact, as we are by right, and your lot is the best. There is no crowned head you cannot carry off from us if you have such a fancy, and I should not be astonished to see Mademoiselle Hippolyte Claren, who is a girl of wit, at some future day become Margravine of Anspach, in competition with my sister, who is a fool. Come, give me a place, de Kleist. I wish to accompany you to the end of the gallery. And your highness will return alone, said Madame de Kleist, who appeared much troubled. Quite alone, replied Amelia, and without any fear of the devil, or of the hobgoblins who held their court in the chateau for some nights past, as I am told. Come, come, Consuelo, we shall see Madame de Kleist's fine fear on crossing the gallery. The princess took a taper and went first, dragging after her Madame de Kleist, who appeared, in fact, far from confident. Consuelo followed them, a little frightened also, without knowing why. I assure you, madam, said Madame de Kleist, that this is the unlucky hour and that there is great rashness in passing through this part of the chateau at this moment. What objection can you have to letting us stay half an hour longer? At half past two there is nothing to fear. No, no, returned Amelia. I should not be sorry to meet her and see what she looks like. What are you talking of? asked Consuelo, quickening her pace to address Madame de Kleist. Don't you know, said the princess, the white woman who sweeps the stairs and corridors of the palace when a member of the royal family is about to die, has revisited us for some nights past. It seems that she takes her diversion in this direction. Therefore it is my life that is threatened. That is why you see me so easy. My sister-in-law, the Queen of Prussia, the weakest head that ever wore a crown, is kept awake by it, as I am told, and goes to sleep every night at Charlottenburg, but as she, as well as the queen my mother, who is no wiser, has an infinite respect for the sweeper, those ladies have taken care to forbid that the phantom be watched or in any way disconcerted in her noble occupations. Thus the chateau is swept very thoroughly, and by Lucifer's own hand, which does not prevent its being very dirty, as you may perceive. At this moment a large cat, coming from the dark extremity of the gallery, passed, rustling and noisy, by the side of Madame de Kleist, who uttered a piercing cry and wished to run towards the apartment of the princess. But the latter held her by force and filled the echoing space with her sharp and hoarse laughter, more dismal even than the north wind which whistled in the depths of that vast building. The cold made Consuelo shiver, as perhaps also did fear for Madame de Kleist's distorted features indicated a real danger, while the boastful and forced gaiety of the princess did not announce any very great confidence. I wonder at your highness's incredulity, said Madame de Kleist, with a broken voice and a little vexation. If you had seen and heard, like myself, this white woman, 
on the eve of the death of the king of your august father. Alas, replied Amelia in a satanic tone, as I am very sure that she does not now come to announce that of the king, my august brother, I am well satisfied she should come for me. The she-devil knows well that one or the other of those two deaths is necessary in order to make me happy. Ah, madam, do not speak thus at such a moment, said Madame de Kleist, whose teeth chattered so that she pronounced her words with difficulty. There, in the name of heaven, stop and listen. Does not that make you shudder? The princess stopped with a sneering air, and the noise of her silk dress, thick and rustling like paper, ceased to cover more distant sounds. Our three heroines, who had almost reached the great staircase that opened at the extremity of the gallery, distinctly heard the dry sound of a broom which struck unequally upon the stone stairs, and seemed to approach by ascending from step to step, as a servant in a hurry to finish his work would have done. The princess hesitated an instant and then said, resolutely, As there is nothing supernatural so far, I wish to see if that is a sleepwalking lackey or an intriguing page. Drop your veil, Porporina, you must not be seen in my company. As to you, de Kleist, you may be ill if you please. I give you notice that I shall pay no attention to you. Come, brave Rudelstadt, you who have engaged in worse adventures, follow me if you love me. Amelia walked with a firm step towards the entrance of the staircase. Consuelo followed her without being allowed to take the light in her stead, and Madame de Kleist, as afraid to remain alone as to go forward, dragged herself behind them, hanging to the porporina's cloak. The infernal broom was no longer heard, and the princess reached the balustrade, over which she held her light that she might see better at a distance. But whether she was less calm than she wished to appear, or whether she perceived some terrible object, her hand failed, and the enameled candlestick, with its taper and collar of cut crystal, fell with a crash to the bottom of the resounding spiral. Then Madame de Kleist, losing her wits and caring no more for the princess than for the actress, began to run in the dark until she found the door of her mistress's apartment, where she sought refuge, while the latter, divided between an insurmountable emotion and the shame of confessing herself vanquished, returned in the same direction with Consuelo, at first slowly and then little by little quickening her steps, for other steps were heard behind hers, and they were not those of the porporina, who walked on the same line with herself, more resolutely perhaps, though she made no boast. Those strange steps, which from moment to moment approached nearer and nearer, sounded in the darkness like those of an old woman with high heels, and clacked upon the tiles, while the broom still did its duty, and struck the wall heavily, now to the right, now to the left. This short passage appeared very long to Consuelo. If anything can overcome the courage of truly firm and healthy minds, it is a danger which can neither be foreseen nor understood. She did not pride herself upon a useless boldness and did not turn her head a single time. The princess afterwards pretended that she had done so in vain. In the darkness, no one could disprove or determine the fact. Consuelo only remembered that she had not slackened her pace that she had not said a word to her during their forced retreat, and that, on entering her apartment rather precipitously, she almost slammed the door in her face, so anxious was she to close it. 
Still, Amelia would not confess her weakness and soon recovered her sang-froid to laugh at Madame de Kleist, who was almost in convulsions, and to reproach her very bitterly for her cowardice and want of consideration. The compassionate goodness of Consuelo, who suffered at the favorite's distressed condition, restored some pity to the heart of the princess. She deigned to perceive that Madame de Kleist was incapable of hearing her and that she was swooning upon the sofa with her face buried in the cushions. The clock struck three before this poor woman had entirely recovered her senses. Her terror still manifested itself by tears. Amelia was tired of not being a princess and did not like to undress and wait upon herself, having, moreover, her mind affected by some ominous presentiment. She therefore resolved to keep Madame de Kleist until daylight. Until then, said she, we can readily find some pretense to color the matter if my brother hears of it. As to you, Porporina, your presence here could not be explained so easily, and I would not for anything in the world have you seen to leave my apartments. You must therefore go alone and at once, for we are very early risers in this rascally inn. Come to Kleist, be calm, I will keep you, and if you can say a word of good sense, tell us how you came and where you left your chasseur, that the porpurina may use him to go home with. Fear makes us so deeply selfish that Madame de Kleist, enchanted at not having again to encounter the terrors of the gallery, and caring very little for the anguish Consuelo met experience at being obliged to pass through it alone, recovered all her presence of mind to explain to her the road she had to take and the signal she must give in order to join her confidential servant at her exit from the palace in a well-sheltered and unfrequented spot whither she had ordered him to go and wait for her. Provided with these instructions and very certain of not losing herself this time in the palace, Consuelo took leave of the princess, who was by no means anxious to reattend her through the gallery. The young girl therefore departed alone, feeling her way, and reached the formidable staircase without obstacle. A hanging lantern, which burned below, assisted her in the descent, which she accomplished without any unpleasant encounter, and even without fear. This time she was armed with good will. She felt that she was performing a duty towards the unfortunate Amelia, and in such cases she was always courageous and strong. At last she succeeded in leaving the palace by the mysterious little door of which Madame de Kleist had given her the key, and which opened upon the corner of a back court. When she was entirely out of the enclosure, she skirted the outside wall to seek the chasseur, and as soon as she had given the signal agreed upon, a shadow, detaching itself from the wall, came straight to meet her, and a man, enveloped in a large cloak, inclined himself before her and silently offered her his arm in a respectful attitude. End of chapter 10 Read by Bryce Cries, Youngstown, 1989